Welcome to The Organisational Inclusionist. I'm your host, Grace Masuro. In this podcast series, we'll be delving deep into the pressing issues surrounding equality, diversity and inclusion in both the workplace and the broader world. My goal is to foster understanding, inspire change and amplify the voices of those advocating for a more inclusive and equitable society. Throughout this series, I'll be engaging in candid discussions with leaders, experts, activists and changemakers from various fields. We'll explore the challenges, successes and evolving landscapes of equality, diversity and inclusion. From dismantling systematic biases to promoting equal opportunities for all, we'll touch on a broad range of topics. But we won't stop at discussing problems, we'll actively seek out solutions and actionable steps to drive positive change. Our aim is to inspire and empower you, our listeners, to take an active role in making the world a better place for everyone. This is The Organisational Inclusionist. Let's get started. Welcome to today's podcast, exploring the intersectionality between climate change and equity. Today, I'm joined by Olga Murray, who is the director and founder of Private Goodness, a UK-based corporate responsibility, ESG and climate change consultancy. Olga, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited about this conversation because I personally had no idea about this intersectionality and selfishly, I'm excited to learn more but also know that others will benefit from this conversation too. Okay, so let's let's get into into the conversation. How does climate change intensify existing inequalities and disproportionately impact marginalised communities? So the climate and ecological crisis affects all of us, right? No one can completely escape it, but it is the poorest among us, those who are least responsible for the problem, who suffer the most. So you know how in the pandemic, some people were saying, oh, we're all in the same boat. Mm. But you're the same boat? No. No, <laughs> no we were not. Those who were already marginalized suffered the most and often risked their lives and lost their lives. So it's not to say that those who worked from home and the most privileged amongst us didn't die. Of course, the, 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 the virus on its own didn't uh, discriminate. But on average, people will be able to protect themselves better. Mm-hmm. And it's similar with climate. Climate inequalities, however, feel even more unjust to me because the world's richest 1% of the population are responsible for more than twice as many emissions as the poorest 50% of the global population. I'll say it again because it's, 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 it's crazy. The richest 1% are responsible for more than twice as many emissions as the poorest 50%. It's a really, it's a really big injustice. You asked how, how does it intensify existing inequalities? Climate change makes extreme weather more likely, more frequent, and more damaging, right? And you just need to turn on the news to see the evidence of that. Although I, I would argue that uh, as the worst of it as it goes on in the global south, we actually don't see it in the news because it mm. doesn't get uh, as much coverage as it, as it deserves. So if you're poor and your livelihood depends on land, a climate event like a flood destroys your crops, damages your life and uh, so much more than it would a person who has the means to easily relocate or who's got secure income, right? Yeah. If you're disabled and there's a hurricane or some kind of uh, event where you need to leave and the services, uh, the emergency services weren't designed with you in mind or with your needs in mind, you're more likely to be left behind. Mm. And, and finally, if you're black and living in Los Angeles, you're almost twice as likely to die as other residents during a heat wave. And why? You're less likely to have access to air conditioning. You're more likely to live in an area without green spaces. 
and in buildings that are constructed from materials that retain heat and actually exacerbate temperatures. And don't get me started on healthcare. We can have mm. another podcast just on that. <laughs> Any inequality you can think of, uh, climate change, I'm sorry to say, is going to make it worse. Wow. I think, um, you know, one of the things that you said that was really powerful there for me is just the role that the the 1% make in in climate change being an issue. And I know we've we've heard a lot of noise recently about the ULES charge um, and it being seen as a tax on the poor. But hearing a statistic like the one you shared around the impact the 1% make on climate change, you know, I think that really just kind of emphasizes why there is so much frustration around taxes like ULES, because obviously people from marginalized communities can't necessarily afford to upgrade their cars. So how do we, as a society, look at offsetting those disadvantages and really potentially maybe targeting those who have the money more effectively to impact um, climate change or look at, you know, funds potentially that could be created to support people from marginalised communities to be more climate conscious where they can be. What examples do we see of specific communities or regions that are most impacted? I know you gave us um, a few there. Are there any other specific examples that really stand out to you or out of the examples that you gave? Is there one that you want to kind of dig a little bit deeper with? I, I want to talk about, about how it affects women more. Mm-hmm. And the Action Aid website has a very good section on how women and girls are more vulnerable to the effects of climate change. So anyone who's interested, I really recommend looking it up. But I'll sum it up briefly. So women tend to are, are the majority of the world's poor, who, as we said, poor people are more, more affected. They're more likely to be dependent on their food and income for land and natural resources, which are threatened. It is women and girls who are forced to walk great distances to find water when you know when local sources dry up. There was a study from Australia uh, which documented a rise in domestic violence in regions that were affected by fire, where which depressed economic uh, ag- agricultural income. Uh, so, and there's actually a UN framework convention on climate change said climate change is a serious aggravator of gender-based violence. Um, and as women leave their homes due to climate events, they become more vulnerable to early marriage, uh, uh, adolescent pregnancy and trafficking. And, you know, some people get annoyed that it's women and children who get rescued first. Have you heard this? People get, yeah. oh, women and children first. How terrible. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it necessarily is terrible, but it's also not true in a lot of events. So, for example, there was a tsunami in Indonesia, and later uh, studies showed that four females died for every male. And women are more likely to have care and responsibilities or get allocated care and responsibilities. So they're more likely to stay in dangerous situations. You and I talked about this before, how it's very important to not stop uh, a conversation there. It's like, yes, Mm. women are powerful, but billions of women around the world are extremely powerful as they make decisions that influence the environment. So it, it, it might not look very powerful on paper, some of the things, for example, they're deciding which fuel to choose uh, when they cook for their family, which food to cook, which purchasing decisions to make, you know, what to buy. But this uh, this is what makes or breaks, you know, the, the environment around us. So they have powerful position there. I didn't know that in many countries, the majority of farmers are also women. Mm. And if you look at uh, who brings the climate change to top of the of the agenda, it's young women who are leading the Fridays for Future movement. Absolutely. 
And it's countries that are led by women are more likely to ratify international uh, environmental treaties. So yes, women are most affected, but women also lead the way. And I just want to say about this dynamic that, you know, when we talk about victims, so to speak, but actually they're the people who have the solutions and how one doesn't mean another, you know? I said earlier about Global South, how this Global South suffers the most. Global South suffers the vast majority of the damage. And I mean, 90% of the economic cost of climate breakdown happens in the Global South. 98% of climate-related deaths are happening in the Global South. And at the same time, most of the countries there are within their fair share of the global bo- of the of the boundary uh, for emissions. So it's not their fault. They mm. did not cause this, but they're the ones who are suffering. So this is profoundly unequal. This is just. But if we talk just about that, we can be like, oh, poor global south. But in fact, it is the, the global south that is leading the way for climate mitigation. Ethiopia, for example, they had a national plan in 2011, which was to become carbon neutral by 2025. 2025, almost a decade before any of us have heard a phrase of uh, net zero, definitely long before it became commonplace. So a lot of the answers, uh, are, are, people have a lot of the answers. And also with Africa, for example, Africa has raw materials that are needed to transition to a green economy. So it's complicated. It's not mm-hmm. just these people suffer, these people are these people are baddies, these people are victims. It's, uh, you know, it's everything. <laughs> There's so many sides to this. Brilliant. Thank you, Olga. So you've you've talked about some of the initiatives that uh, parts of the Global South are implementing or have implemented to to hopefully impact uh, climate change in a positive way. What do you think or who do you think is most responsible for the challenges that the Global South are, are suffering the most from? To give you the answer, I will quote a uh, uh, brilliant Vanessa Nakate uh, from her book, A Bigger Picture, My Fight to Bring a New African Voice to the Climate Crisis. And I really recommend this book to everybody. One thing to, to note is that Vanessa, I think, was 25 when she wrote this book. So it's absolutely, absolutely brilliant. So she said, and quote this, Our current system would rather destroy the planet for the benefit of the few rather than preserve it for the many. It's founded on greed and exploitation rather than the well-being of the human family and even creation as a whole. It's a system where the costs of the unsustainable lifestyle of the few are borne by the many. The system always wants more, more money, more from nature, more from other people. How do you address this is we need climate justice and climate justice involves redistributing money and resources. We need to look at historical emissions and provide compensation for people who are suffering from them. But I think we also need to begin by telling the truth. And uh, I think we have overcome a massive hurdle that I, I, I don't know if you agree, most people seem to agree with climate change, as climate change is real. Yeah, That was the case a few decades ago. So this, that was a big thing that we've overcome. But now we need to talk about what it means and who it affects and how much we care about people affected. I think will determine how quickly we implement the solutions that we have, because we know what to do, uh, how quickly we do it and how much money and how, how we prioritize it will depend about how much we value the lives of people who or who suffer. I had a podcast um, episode a few weeks ago, and one of the statements that my guest at the time said was that we need to stop looking at those affected by the problem 
also being the ones that solve it. And actually the people that are part of the problem being part of the solution. And I think that's something that really stood out to me from, from some of the points in the quote that you've just shared with us is that we see the global South doing some amazing things to try and turn these climate change challenges around, but actually they're not the ones causing the problem. And therefore there is a lot more that we need to do as the Western world to really impact change in this area. What role do you think social, economic and political systems play in this continuing? Every, every role. Uh, systems is a good word, is, is, is because I think, like, again, when we talk about climate change, we often talk about individual action. And I don't want to say that we individuals are, are powerless. There's the, the, we are citizens. Uh, we can vote. Or so, so a lot those of us who can vote can vote. Uh, or we can we have our purchasing decisions. We can influence. Uh, we can influence systems. But it's we need this structural and systemic change. I just want to repeat the point about about the pandemic. It's uh, Jeremy Williams uh, uh, wrote a book called Climate Change is Racist. Uh, also comparing our climate to the pandemic. He said, inequalities make people more vulnerable to shock, whether that is climate-related or a pandemic. A virus cannot be racist any more than a carbon particle can, but an underlying structural racism creates an outcome that divides along racial lines. And it's the same with any with 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 any any, any system that if you uh, you need to improve healthcare, we need to improve education, we need to improve migrant rights. Uh, we need to improve social cohesion. So it's not just about reducing emissions, which is absolutely necessary. It's about healing our society and making sure that we work together. And I want to give you one example. It's from Bangladesh, where climate impacts are seen. Bangladesh has been very much in the forefront of climate uh, of climate change. They've really suffered from uh, terrible weather events. And Salim, Salim al-Haq said, What's truly important in times of crisis is social cohesion, people helping each other. And we have that in droves in Bangladesh. Whenever we're hit by extreme weather, we go out and we help each other. Nobody's left behind. School children have drills, so they know when they need to go and evacuate an emergency and whom to help. An elderly widow living alone will have two children from the high school assigned to her to go and pick her up. The hurricane still comes and it still does a lot of damage, but it won't kill people on the scale it once did. And primary reason for that is we, that we work together. Wow. And so you ask about social, political, economic systems. We need to move them towards togetherness. Mm. And then we'll be in a much better place. Absolutely. So powerful. I think, you know, one of the things that I, I regularly joke about when I travel or when I am in different parts of the UK is just how stark the differences in terms of how people interact with with one another you know walking down the street and a stranger says hello to you in in Manchester for example Newcastle um that's very rare in London you know everyone is so busy kind of in their own worlds and and there is that isolation isn't there so you know what you just shared there around children being assigned elderly to go and rescue I think that's mind-blowing and it'd be amazing if we could replicate just that type of support system or caring effort in the Western world for the vulnerable. How can we address these systematic issues then? <laughs> Where do we start? I think, as I said, we begin by by by, by talking about them. We be, begin mm-hmm. by telling the truth. We begin by acknowledging them. Yeah. Uh, because we can't just go on and pretend that everything is fine. 
and then we i think we, we can start on the community level so think of where your connections are mm-hmm. is it with, with your neighbors is it uh if your children are in school what is the school doing about this how are they talking about it are they teaching this can you help organize that what is your mp doing about it i mean with the recent events chances are not not very much mm. uh, if you you shop in local businesses have a conversation with them about about climate change and climate justice and same with bigger businesses if you shop uh, uh shop with them or interact with them in any way in your workplace have a conversation with your colleagues mm. we are sometimes made to feel like we are just this one one person and what can we do but we are not alone we live in mm-hmm. communities we work in communities and if we work together we can there's a lot we can do i really believe that absolutely and i think education is is really really key in all of this because there will be so many people who like myself had no clue about this intersectionality but also probably didn't feel like there was much they could do about the issue the bigger issue um and i think you're so right you know as individuals but as a collective we are so powerful and yeah. having those conversations like it actually would be really easy for me at the next um, school event to ask the head teacher, you know, how do you teach our children about climate change? Um, You know, those types of questions will definitely, I think, help to move things along. So thank you for that, Olga. How does climate change impact food security and access to nutritious food, particularly in low-income areas? And what strategies can be employed to address these issues? It's a very important question. Thank you for asking. The number of people suffering acute food insecurity is increasing. And it's really heartbreaking because we as humanity have made great progress in addressing food insecurity. And now this progress because of climate change is being reversed. Mm. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, concluded that the higher average uh, global temperatures and more extreme weather events associated with climate change will reduce the reliability of, of food production. Other people describe it as global weirding, so uh, we talk about global warming, global wo- global boiling, but there's another term which is sounds weird, but it's quite <laughs> explains it quite well. It's global weirding that mm-hmm. the rainfall is uh, there's more of it. It's less predictable. We don't before we were able, people were able to plan their agriculture, their 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 their, their food production over a um, schedule that was more or less predictable now that's more or less out of the window so that's uh that affects farmers and 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 people who rely on on land so much more uh another thing is that heat and rainfall uh degrading land make soil less productive and you know how we talked earlier about uh, a quote from Vanessa Nakati about how we want more, 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 more. And we often want more and more and more from soil, from the same, you know, square centimeter. We use a lot of fertilizer so it grows more food. We use this and we just grow again, again, again. But soil is is is, is alive, you know, it's only so much it can take. So what we need is uh, what is known as regenerative uh, agriculture, which we don't have that much time to go into it, but uh, it's basically using less fertilizer and giving soil a rest, so rotating it more. So uh, if you give soil a little bit of a rest, then maybe next year it can 
it can produce more to you mm-hmm. <laughs> it, 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 it can be more productive it can be more, more more helpful so it is about respecting you know our soil respecting the trees respecting nature and just stop being so selfish about it like this mm-hmm. attitude you, you know this i mean it's not, it's not going to be news to you but uh about a third of all food that we produce has been thrown away yeah at the time where, where people are starving and the children are starving mm-hmm. uh, about 900 million tons of food is thrown away and so you know there's enough food and there's enough food for 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 the population increasing a bit more but we need to get much better at at at, at distributing it and not wasting it um i have i do climate change training is what i do uh, and uh, i i do a lot of uh, courses over zoom and i have a painting which is a a blue painting with the with the moon and with the sea and I put that painting up after really sad points <laughs> because I think that sometimes there's only so much negative and scary information a brain can process. Yeah. Like, oh, here children are dying and food has been thrown away and this is making climate worse. And it's 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 like, it's a lot, isn't it? it so is. I mean, I can't podcast in the audio. I can't do this. But imagine, just like, let's breathe for a second before we move on to the next scary point. Imagine blue sky. <laughs> okay, uh, enough imagining. Back to, <laughs> uh, back to, so yes, food is, is paramount. But food is also something we don't talk about enough because i don't know this might be this might be surprising to you but a third of all human caused greenhouse gas emissions is linked to food oh wow i'm sure you would have heard a lot about fossil fuels which is absolutely the biggest driver coal oil you know Mm. Uh, but a third of it is food and food is something we can we can do something about, you know. I mean, we can do things about fossil fuels, but we're we're talking about the great forces against us, and you know mm. they're powerful. Uh, and I'm not to say that farmers aren't powerful, but farmers are more local, you know. Yeah. And also, our we can influence our own food choices. When I say a third of all greenhouse gas emissions linked to food, what I mean is animal-based products, especially red meat and dairy. So meat production requires extensive grasslands. So it's often created by cutting down trees. Mm-hmm. Cutting down trees is bad <laughs> for, yeah. for climate, but we cut them down for cows. Cows and sheep then emit, uh, emit methane. And as I say, we use uh, chemical fertilizers, which are just bad all around. So what we can do is we can eat more plant-based food. And I'm not saying, you know, it's all become vegan overnight. <laughs> uh, there are Vegan food is tasty. It but is. I feel like people make diff- their own personal journeys. But things like discovering more tasty plant-based recipes and just eating meat less and less and less is is good for your health as well. And we can cut down waste. And most importantly, what I think we can do is to treat food and water as precious resources that they are. Those of us who have uh, access to uh, food, easy access to food and water, Let's let's value them for 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 the for the for the uh, uh, amazing um, um, amazing gifts that we have. So it's like turning off the tap or uh, ha- having shorter showers. And being water is not unlimited. Mm. Food is, uh, uh, is 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 precious. So I think if we need to change our own attitudes quite a bit and then influence our communities in doing the same. Absolutely, thank you, Olga. Well, you've mentioned earlier about just how significant the dis 
the disparities are in how marginalised communities experience climate change. Are there any solutions or policies that can address both climate change and promote equity? And are there any successful case studies that you could share? What we need to do to address climate change is to uh, decarbonize. So we need to move away from fossil fuels towards green energy. We need to do that in a way where no one is left behind. So Scotland, where I live, uh, has what, what are known as just transition policies. So people who might lose their jobs from oil will have a safety net and training and employment opportunities. And there is this expectation that if you ask people to, if, if, you, if, if you're talking about policies that will mean that people in oil give up their jobs, that you'll look after them. Mm. So the policies, I think, are quite good. I have met with the politicians who are working on these policies. I think they are very genuine in in, in looking after the, their communities. There is little, the reason why I don't know how, if I can say it as a great success, because trust is broken down. Um, and I, I think that people would, th- these policies would work, but look what happened to the UK when the, we had the last energy transition, when uh, we shut down coal, coal mines. Mm. Communities were left behind. Yeah. And how many decades ago was it? You can still see it in these communities. It's not just individuals who lost their jobs. It's mm. families who lost their livelihoods. And they're still. And now they're saying, oh, move away from this source to another. We'll look after you honest. They're like, hmm, will you? You didn't last time. Yeah, exactly. So we have the right policies, but we need to do a lot of actually working with the communities to rebuild this trust. And I think you do this by transparency and, and dialogue. I want to give you a, an example which is really heartbreaking. So decarbonizing is about climate mitigation. So it's about reducing emissions to make sure that the, the planet doesn't boil quite so much so quickly. Uh, but the really big thing about climate is climate adaptation. So we know that sea levels are rising. Mm-hmm. We know that uh, more heat waves are coming. So how do we prepare and how do we protect the most vulnerable? And there are lots of policies about it, like making sure that uh, as I said about people with disabilities, for example, are not left behind. So we, 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 when we design our policies about how we're going to respond to these events, which we know are coming, whether it's next year or in 10 years' time, that they are inclusive. Mm. Uh, some decisions are more heartbreaking than others. So there is an island nation of Kiribati that over the last several decades suffered from sea level rises and has been eaten away at its country's uh, 313 square miles. Without action, the country of 102,000 people might disappear altogether. So oh. its president knows this. And the president, as it was in a book by Mary Robinson, who's a former president of Ireland, female president of Ireland. She's very impressive. She wrote a book about climate justice, which I'd recommend as well. He went to a COP, you know, climate conference, mm-hmm. one of them. Uh, and there was one that was a particularly, particularly bad one, <laughs> a particularly disorganized one. And he came and he was like, he was asking about what, what the country is going to do to protect nations like his. And he came back feeling like they probably won't do much. Yeah. And uh, nobody's coming to help. So he had to make a very uh, shocking decision to purchase 5,000 acres of land in nearby Fiji as an insurance policy. So when the civil levels rise so much that if the island is no longer safe, the entire 100,000 people are going to relocate to wow. Fiji, to this land that they bought. He calls it migration with dignity because we know the way refugees are treated and they are going to give up, give up their homes and leave. Uh, They'll try and save their island, but looking at ahead, they know that 
it's 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 unlikely so they will all leave wow and imagine having to make this kind of decision as a as a as a nation exactly uh but it's forward thinking it's it's about tell you we need to tell the truth yeah we need to know what's happening and what's coming and we need to see who it affects and we need to plan accordingly I mean, we also need to help sea level nations. So, <laughs> so instead of like giving tax breaks to to billionaires, exactly. we should help people so this doesn't need to happen. But exactly. and I wonder if even, you know, there's more that we could do around if we are going to give those tax breaks, actually giving them tax breaks for helping nations like this. And, and you know, we see so many different things on the news, but we... We probably have never heard about this on the news. You know, why aren't stories like this being shared so that more people are aware and potentially if they can impact change, you know, in, in any way, it's that visibility that enables them to do that as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that the news coverage got better in the last couple of years, mm. I would say. It's still not nearly good enough, but you yeah. see headlines about it. And they sometimes would say that there was this extreme extreme uh, weather event that was devastating. And you would see climate change in the same sentence. Yeah. That's, that's new. <laughs> <laughs> there didn't need to be that connection. That's so true. I think that there's great progress. And it's very easy to become despondent. And I become sad and, and think, oh, what can be done a few times a day hmm. uh, as, I, as I work on this. But there is there is also, there's there's been great progress in raising awareness about climate and clever people coming up with uh, the solutions. For example, biodiversity is not something that was talked about very much. And just nature in general, it was like climate is climate and nature's got maybe some part to do it because nature, you know, oceans, their carbon sinks and maybe we should protect them. But we nature will, will will save us. We need nature-based solutions. And people talk about it so much more now. It, it doesn't sound like it would be a big leap, but <laughs> I'm glad it's been made. So Absolutely. now when we talk about climate crisis, we often talk about climate and biodiversity crisis or climate and ecological crisis. So it's connected to the environment around us. Thank you. So imagine I'm a CEO who wants to do something about this. How would I start or what could I do to really affect change? And are there any examples of companies successfully navigating this intersection? So first, I think, is to recognize how powerful you are as a, as a person and as a business person. And this is absolutely your role. And there's something you can do. And it's your role as as, as a leader to raise awareness about this and to act but it's also your role as a company owner, company director, to protect your own company and to prepare your company for for what's to come. Uh, I am uh, a big believer. I really, I really believe this. So one part is don't be part of the problem. Mm-hmm. So your own operations, your own supply chains. I mean, is your business is is your business carbon positive or is it part of the problem? You know, is it a pollution business? Is your work making things better or worse for for communities, not just your local communities, but globally? And do you do due diligence? So, for example, some I as I said, I'm a big fan of trees. I'm a big fan of planting trees. But I want uh, a good answer before you give uh, an organization money to plant this is how much are people who do the work get paid? Yeah. So the trees grow fastest by around near the equator. And so a lot of workers of planting trees has been taken up um, in very hot and already hot environments. And some people get paid absolutely next to nothing. Mm. So a lot of this tree planting goes on in um, not quite forced labor, but in really terrible conditions. So by to meet some kind of corporate quote, 
actually what happens is that you force communities uh, to to do work uh, that's really really physical hard work for very little money yeah. for their survival and actually if you work with reputable organizations tree planting can be an excellent project that empowers communities so i'm a big fan of the word forest organization that plant trees and support communities in kenya and the uk because they don't just give money for planting trees, but they they really work together with people and they they focus on education and female empowerment and community. And because of their work, people's lives are better. It's not just about the environment. As we said from the very beginning, this is human-centric. We need human-centric approaches. So as a CEO, I would do your due diligence about the project you support. One thing to say is that what else what else you can do is to work with others. Partner with others in your sector, in your community, in your, so for example, if you're a law firm, there are lots of other law firms that are doing things. You can work with them. People are more willing to share than than you think they are in this area because people want want to help. There are many consultants like myself who can help. And I there are not quite as many of us as there are lawyers, but I hope there'll be a day when there'll be so many environmental consultants as there are. But there are many uh, of us around of different sizes. And a successful example uh, would be the outdoor clothing company Patagonia. I don't know if you've heard of it. I haven't. Patagonia, they're quite good on, on climate change in general. They I would I would I would read up their policies. They're very they're, they're very good and they're very good at talking about it as well. Which so one thing they've done is to establish a long-standing relationship with the witching people of the Arctic. They met people there and people there have a say in their advocacy work to end drilling in the in the region. So they could have just said, oh, we care about climate justice, don't don't drill in the Arctic. But instead they have they're empowering local people to make their voices heard in the US and across the globe. They have done the work of understanding who is most affected by this. Who has the solutions to this? And they have made the connections with the community, uh, which I think is is quite impressive. Thank you. You know, I'm a mother, so everything I do is for my daughter, which is in a significant part of, of why I do the work that I do around equality, diversity and inclusion. A lot of the work we do now will be handed over to future generations. So how can we engage and empower them to be actively involved in shaping equitable climate policies and solutions? You know, uh, I think that it's more how can we learn from them? The young people now are so impressive. They're mm. so impressive. I went to a climate uh, stop, just stop world protest in Edinburgh. And most people at that protest were closer to my son's age than they are to mine. Yeah. <laughs> they are so young. So, a lot of them are, are school children. And mm. yet they're so knowledgeable. They were telling me about uh, oil development in Scotland, the programs that there are to stop them. They know all about just transition. So I am a climate consultant. I've been doing this for five years. And I went to that protest and I came, I didn't teach anybody nothing. <laughs> <laughs> They they all taught me about what what what's what. It was amazing. So it's unfair that we have young people who are fixing this mess. Absolutely. Of course, it's unfair. It should be for the for the adults, for the people who have benefited from our ridiculous consumption and and lifestyles. Who are holding out. But young people are they are they are doing great. Uh, and so it's not about empowering them. I would say it's about looking after them. Mm. a heavy heavy topic like you were saying equality and diversity again lots of young people know exactly what's what yeah but it's heavy it's heavy mm. and so i think we need to help them address climate anxiety by again providing spaces to talk about it mm-hmm. by talking about it with love 
I would say that yeah. the, the answer to, to a lot of these things, particularly when it goes to young people, is love. So yeah. why do we do this? There's a lot of anger, you know, we're doing this because they're destroying our communities because uh it's heavy, it's true, but it's heavy. But the, another side of this is love. We do this because we love our neighbors. We love mm -hmm. people who we want to we, we want to to stay around. Uh or we love our children and we want them to have a good life. We love nature. So let's do this. Let's do this, all these things that young people want to do, but let's do it with love. I Absolutely. think that there are gentler ways to to, 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 to to engage. But having said that, I have just so much respect for people and their advocacy and their work. So they do what they do. But I just feel like for parents uh, and, and people in the community, just to be like, we're here and we're here to, to support. Thank you, Olga. So I always feel like there should be a call to action. I think particularly when we've talked about such an important topic, what would be your call to action for anyone listening that wants to make a difference here? I think talk about it. Find out more. I'm going to write a blog on my website where I would link to this podcast and I would uh, list all the sources that I listed. There are some excellent books that I quoted, some excellent reports. Uh, so you can uh, click uh, on free online reports and maybe get some books in the library that, that, I, that I mentioned and to learn to learn more. And then Talk about it, as we said to everybody. You can, and you're with your, with your, with your, with the school, with the neighbors, with the people at your work. And another thing is make your voice heard by those in power. So mm. maybe there are some things that you've heard at this podcast. Maybe you go to my blog and go to other sources and double check them, triple check them, make sure that you completely, you know, understand them. And if some of these facts that we quoted just are not right, that's it right with you. Make sure that your MP knows about it. Make sure that people around know about it. So make your voice heard by this power because your voice, your voice has power. Uh, again, what what emotion do you need to tap into to make a difference? Uh, perhaps, as we said, love is is one of them. Be more mm -hmm. more loving towards towards others when discussing this because just kind of pointing a finger and blaming, which is so easy to do, is not always the most effective way. But no. I talk about this out of the love and respect for others. Thank you so much, Olga. That has been such an informative conversation. I will also list the books that you've mentioned in this conversation for anyone that's listening um, who is interested in learning more and doing more. And thank you, you know, selfishly again for the time you've given me today, because I have taken away so much around what I can do to really impact change in this area as well so thank you so much Olga oh thank you very much it's been really great talking to you this podcast is brought to you by Acquaintance Consulting we'd love it if you could take a minute at the end of this podcast to follow subscribe whichever is easier or available for you on the platform that you're listening to us on we're really keen to grow this channel and really impact equality diversity and inclusion across the world and with your support we can do just that